Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. I am not happy at all with I deem as picking and choosing projects that this body has put in the last couple of years that, that you have that possibly eliminating and they're redirecting money. We see this as a starting point and we, we want to work with the legislature. We have our doors open for them to come in and listen to our proposal. We hope that they will talk to us. Many of the students that have this identity issue, uh, they suffer from depression, they suffer from anxiety, and some are even suicidal. Well, if that's the case, these children need for their parents to know so their parents can provide the support and the comfort and perhaps outside professional help for the children. No one commits suicide because they are gender dysphoric. They do it because family and society won't accept them or allow them to live as their true selves. I would actually say that that was the basis for the productivity for some incredible achievements that made a difference for the American people in the last two years. We still don't agree on getting rid of the filibuster. That's correct. And joining me to talk about budget battles already brewing at the state capitol, one potential U.S. Senate Senate candidate saying he will not run and more, are Lorna Romero-Ferguson of Elevate Strategies. Hi, Lorna. Good morning. And Don Penich-Sacker of Agave Strategy. Good morning, Don. Good morning. So, uh, Lorna does not seem as though Governor Hobbs' budget proposal, which he released uh, later in the day Friday, um, doesn't seem like it was uh, that big of a hit at the Capitol. Uh, I think, obviously, with the Republican caucus, it went over like a lead balloon. Um, To see even the day before she released her budget, them like preemptively saying, we're going to go for a baseline budget based off of what we passed last year. And then depending on what money is left over, we'll go ahead and negotiate any future spending. Um, And then to to see just the chorus amongst Republicans, even the far right and the more moderate Republicans saying this is a non-starter as soon as it went public, um, was a little surprising to me, in all honesty. You usually don't see that much um, activity, especially from some of these more uh, senior members, right, that are more of the the moderate caucus that she's going to need to negotiate with. But, I mean, there's some real issues with the budget that she proposed, and the Republicans made it very clear they're, they're not interested as using that as a starting point. So is is this proposal maybe the thing that can bring the various wings of the Republican Party together, all just in opposition hating this proposal? It was really interesting. A week ago, we saw Republican unity for the first time in God knows how long. You know, when you see T.J. Shope and Jake Hoffman and whomever saying the same thing about their response to the budget. So, I mean, it really does bring the the, the caucus and the party together. The interesting point's going to be, yes, they're, they're all unified in how much they dislike her budget, but getting the Republicans on the same page of what they want to see in the budget, it's probably going to be the bigger challenge. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, Don. that, yes, Republicans were unified in their opposition. And to Lorna's point that, you know, the, the day before Governor Hobbs released her proposal, they came and said, OK, let's basically do again what we did last year. Let's get that done now, and then we can, you know, negotiate anything additional later on. Do do you think that Governor Hobbs – obviously, this is a starting point. Do you think that Governor Hobbs will be able to maybe pick off a few Republicans in the House and Senate to be able to get some number of her priorities done? Yeah, I think that this is – In many ways, it's an abnormal process, but in many ways, I think we're going to see normal processes play out as well. I was actually less surprised at kind of all of the posturing here at the very beginning because it's a new day. There's a lot of people who are new to the legislature at all, but also 
many of us are new, people watching and there at the Capitol are new to this split government. And so to me, it just seemed like people kind of taking up their space. So Republicans saying, yes, you're the governor, but this is our legislature and we are going to own it. And the governor rightly saying, sure, but I'm the governor and this is the the budget that I want. Um, and so to me, I thought, yes, this is what you have to do. You can't get elected and then go in and immediately say, I'm going to give up some of our base values. You need to go own it, be confident in, in the values that got you there. And then after time, I think that we'll start to see, because it's always easier to say no in unison than it is to <laughs> say yes. And so that's where we're going to start to see the moderates, the bentomas, who want to achieve some things in their years down there, starting to come and say, okay, these these are places that we can make movement on. Maybe it's on water. Maybe it's in some areas of education. Maybe it's on some tax reform. And, and use that as a starting place to do something better than just the continuation budget that they're talking about now. But the continuation budget was a bipartisan budget last year, right? <laughs> That's and the so, interesting thing, so, isn't it? I mean, it was, a one, a really good budget. And two, a lot of those Democrats voted for it last year that are still down there. And so interesting dynamic. If the Republicans do throw that up on the board, do you vote against it even though you supported it last year? Um, you know, And I know Katie Hobbs will veto it because then it takes away all of her negotiation power. But, I mean, that, that wasn't a Repu – there was Republicans who – you know, actively opposed that budget last year. And so just an interesting dynamic that now they've all kind of coalesced around the baseline budget, which is that. And then now Democrats are like, oh, no, that's not good enough, even though they supported it a year ago. Yeah. Well, and I think that part of that is that Democrats went back to their communities, back to their constituencies and started to hear a lot of flack for going mm. in on that budget. And so now they're saying, OK, yes, I voted for last time, but it's a new day. We have a governor. She has priorities that should be easier for us to move with as Democrats. So, Don, one of the things in the governor's budget proposal that really seemed to rub the Republican lawmakers the wrong way is her repeal of last year's universal voucher uh, expansion. And, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, it was a negotiating tactic. It was a nod to her base, that kind of thing. I'm curious from your perspective, like, was that a good idea? Was that a smart thing to put in there? She had to have known that Republicans would really, really object to that. Yeah, absolutely. It was a smart thing to put in there. It is what her base expects. Um, you know, when you poll people and actually explain what this program is and certainly what it's costing, um, it is not popular. And so absolutely, that's something that she needed to say. Whether or not it would ever be possible, probably not, to actually roll this back is, is kind of an aside. But yeah, she needed to say that because that's what her voters and her community wants to hear that she remembers and cares about. Lorna, is this kind of the equivalent for the governor of what we heard some lawmakers saying before the session that, you know, look, we know that the governor is going to veto some of the things we send up there, but we have to send them up there because our our base, our voters expect us to. Is this kind of the same thing just for, for Governor Hobbs that she knows that Republicans are never going to go for this, but she has to at least propose it as a as sort of a nod to, to her voters? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, and, and this isn't going to be the first time that we see this during the session. <laughs> um, we're seeing that with some of the Republican bills that are already starting to go through um, that are probably more political in nature to put her in a bad spot. Uh, so it becomes a, a talking point for 2024. Same thing for Katie Hobbs. She made it very clear on the campaign trail 
And she was opposed to ESAs and wanted to roll it back, right? She knows the reality. She's never going to get that through this legislature, but she's got to use it as a negotiation starting point. And so I think from a negotiation standpoint, it was smart because she'll negotiate down from that, knowing that realistically it wasn't going to happen. Not smart from a relationship building standpoint, which is going to be really critical for her to try to have as smooth of a session as possible. I mean, it's already a rocky start, but like you have to build that bipartisan coalition. And so throwing that out there from the start was not good in terms of trying to create um, some synergies with some of the Republicans she's going to need in a few months. Some of those Republicans, Lauren, are already using the S word, right? Shutdown. We're in January. (laughs) The the new fiscal year starts July 1st. And we heard David Livingston, among others this week, saying, you know, maybe we need to start looking at, you know, how layoffs work and how a government shutdown might work. Like, are are things that pessimistic down there? I mean, well, I guess everyone builds their own narrative about what what the reality is. I mean, we just started the new year, right? Um, And obviously, there's going to be some challenges that the legislature and, and the new governor are going to face. But to be talking about a government shutdown already in in January, I think, is extremely premature. Um, as somebody who worked for a gubernatorial administration, where like there were serious conversations about government shutdown because budgets weren't being passed in time or budgets were vetoed on the day <laughs> that you know the new fiscal year started. That's a lot of work and anxiety from just the enterprise of state government, from the executive branch. And, you know, these agency directors, they put a lot of time and energy, whether there's a potential state or federal government shutdown, right? It has a significant impact. And it's not something that should be taken lightly, is basically what I'm saying. There's employees that are put at risk. There's, you know, state programs put at risk. And so... From my personal opinion, we should be avoiding a shutdown talk this early on as much as possible and just be focused on the issues and how to negotiate a real budget. I mean, Don, to, to Lorna's point, in the past, you know, maybe in like June, people start talking about, oh, well, maybe the state parks, you know, we're going to have to get people out of the state parks at a certain time. But it seems pretty unprecedented to be talking about shutdowns you know, the second week of session. Yeah, usually it's right around May that people, are we going to get this done? I don't know. And the hand-wringing begins. But, you know, um, this point about not a wise move for relationship building, I think that's the Republican tit for tat there of, you know, starting out with the worst case scenario in week one is not really the way to message that you're trying to get things done for the American people. So I think everyone right now is really still caught up in the political sphere, the partisan Mm. sphere. And hopefully, you know, over the course of a few weeks, they'll start to remember that what they're all doing there is serving the people of Arizona, families, communities, rural communities that really need some solutions and answers here. And I think, I hope, I'm putting it out there to the universe (laughs) (laughs) that they will come back around to remembering what they're there for and that there really are solutions on the table that could be true bipartisan wins and that if some egos and some partisanship can just be tucked aside for a bit, that we can get there. Is this a matter of lawmakers and the governor maybe needing to learn how to take yes for an answer? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's kind of the there will be this little learning curve of being able to have kind of those bipartisan relationships that, you know, the cinemas of your have always been able to have and say, I can talk to someone on the other side and it'll be okay. I won't get, you know, lambasted when I go back to my chambers and my community and that that's actually what most voters want. 
Lorna, I'm not going to ask you to predict when or even maybe if a budget <laughs> will get done. Um, but do you do you think that there might be aspects of the proposal that Governor Hobbs put out that you know, at some point, Republican lawmakers might be able to get on board with. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely think there's aspects of her budget that, you know, Republicans support from a transportation mm-hmm. infrastructure funding standpoint um, and, and, so, and some other key items that she mentioned. And, and as Don mentioned, I mean, there's a big conversation about water, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, there's going to be a, a fiscal, you know, connection to that as well with the budget. Uh, homelessness, you know, mental health issues, you know, there's there's a whole host of things that Republicans and Democrats can have a kumbaya on it's just a question of how long is it going to take us to get there, right? And so, um, and and a lot of that is dependent on leadership and the direction mm-hmm. that you know Peterson and Toma, t- you know, take their caucuses. Senate so, President, House Speaker. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. So, um, it, it it's really dependent on the direction that the caucuses go in the next few weeks. And so, I I agree with Don that you know this the first few weeks was more of like these you know political salvos where everyone needed to get on their you know <laughs> uh, uh, get on their you know high horse and give their speeches and you know prep for 2024. And I do think there's still a lot of hurt feelings from this past election cycle, too, that people need to work through and move on from. But I think as the weeks continue and people adjust to the new administration and the new administration adjusts to having, you know, this this legislature, they'll get into their normal working groove of working through bills and figuring out what gets vetoed and what doesn't, and then figuring out where those areas of opportunity are between, you know, the Democrat governor and Republican legislature. But I, I do think it might take a little while. <laughs> All right. <laughs> My guests this week are Don Penich Thacker of Agave Strategy and Lorna Romero Ferguson of Elevate Strategies. Don, we learned yesterday that uh, Congressman Greg Stanton, who who had been rumored as a potential candidate for U.S. Senate uh, next year, has decided not to run. Um, Does that surprise you at all? No, there have been a lot of conversations throughout Democratic circles of, you know, kind of the the chess game that might result, you know, if different people throw their hat in. And and we also had um, an inkling of this, a hint of it last week when it was revealed that one of Stanton's top and most kind of loyal um, staffers had joined into Ruben Gallego's mm. team. And so that was kind of an early sign that, that this was all of the momentum was in um, Congressman Gallego direction. And and so I was not surprised to see this, but in true Stanton fashion, it was a gracious and, you know, well-stated kind of answer to what we've been wondering. So assuming that Ruben Gallego jumps in, which I think pretty much anybody who's paying attention to this expects that he will at some point, is he the only Democrat running, do you think, or might there be an actual primary? No, I think that we will see him announcing very soon. And I think that he will be the Democratic pick. I don't hear any other murmurings, and it feels very much like the this is one thing that the Democratic Party has been able to, you know, gradually coalesce into and and understands that this needs to be a strong showing of support and unity for the party. So, Lorna, were you surprised at all that that Congressman Stanton decided not to throw his hat in this particular ring? I'm not surprised that that was his final decision. I'm surprised at how early he made that public, right? Every politician, whether you're Republican or Democrat, kind of likes the the lingering question of, <laughs> are you going to run? Are you going to do this? Um, and, you know, just keeps their names in the headline a little, headlines a little bit more. But I really am surprised this early on he made, made that decision. It makes it abundantly clear that there's been a lot of work behind the scenes to clear the field for Ruben Gallego, um, because even though he has not officially announced, he's actively fundraising 
fundraising and attacking Kirsten Cinema and, you know, doing all the things that a candidate would do, building a team, et cetera. Um, but I always question, I know Democrats are really good at kind of clearing the field and just having one candidate, maybe two for a competitive primary. But I always question if that's actually the best strategy. Because oftentimes people don't pay attention. If there's not a competitive primary, folks aren't paying attention to that candidate. Mm. Um, and so I, so it, it makes it more difficult to build name ID going into a general election shortly thereafter. And so I always, I always question that because it's very hard to have an active campaign when you're not really competing against anybody. So we, we've also heard that uh, Carrie Lake might be considering running on the GOP side. There's questions about whether or not Kirsten Cinema is going to run uh, for re-election. She, of course, would be running as an independent. How do you see this race potentially shaping up? I mean, I, I know that we, we just finished, and I apologize. I don't for, want to talk about it. I know. I, I apologize for jumping immediately to 2024, but right. I promise this will be the only one I ask you about this. Um, like, how do you see this race potentially shaping up next year? This is going to be, I mean, we've had all eyes on Arizona for the past few elections. It's going to be even more. If Kirsten runs as an independent, this is going to be a dynamic in a general election that we have not seen before. And and nobody should counter out. I mean, Kirsten Sinema is a very smart woman, right? And she's very strategic. And if if Democrats have already decided it's Rubin, Rubin's got a progressive record that he's going to have to defend in the state of Arizona, which I think is going to be very difficult. Republicans have a similar challenge. Are you going to go for a Carrie Lake, you know, again, out of the primary? Did we not learn from 2022? I'm hoping that Republicans did, but but who knows? But, I mean, you have two scenarios where you have more of the left-leaning and potentially right-leaning candidates that can create a coalition of the middle around Kirsten, you know? So, like, and you have a candidate who only has to win with, like, 30 percent of the vote, 30, you know? So, I mean, it's it's going to be really fascinating from a coalition-building standpoint and just even just, you know, counting noses and figuring out whose who's voters are going to turn out. But, um yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting if if Kirsten does announce as, as an independent. Yeah, I mean, Don, a winner could emerge for, with what, like 30 some odd percent of the vote in that potential three-way primary, which means it's really, I mean, it could be anybody's anybody's election, right? Yeah, that's true. The math is there. Um, I am someone who has long counted cinema out, actually, in this <laughs> next. I, um, I don't think she's running again in Arizona. Um, I have felt that way for a long time. And who knows, maybe I'll be eating my words um, before too long. But I think this is going to be a question of uh, Congressman Gallego versus, you know, we're hearing Carrie Lake, we're hearing Blake Masters again. And so I think to me, the bigger question is what have Republicans learned from this last time around? Um, will it matter? And then how will Rubin um, negotiate a new identity that appeals to the, the larger electorate in Arizona? You know, he is a veteran. He has been working on many things that when presented to voters, uh, independent and, and progressive alike, people are popular. But getting that, getting folks to understand that and see him in that way is probably why he's starting so early, because he has a lot of work to do in shaping an image for the Senate. So we've been talking a little bit about that race. And Kirsten Cinema was in Davos, Switzerland this week at the the, the big confab, uh, economic confab, where she and Joe Manchin basically talked again about filibuster reform. And, and it seemed like she kind of took a, a bit of a victory lap for not getting rid of, of the filibuster. 
How does that potentially play into, do you think, whether or not she decides to run? And if she does, it, let's say you're wrong, which I would never say that, but let's say that you are in this case. Um, like, how does that, how does, how do comments like that potentially impact her run? Well, that moment was actually one of, you know, I collected that into my little, you know, bucket of evidence for why I believe the way I do about her future um, ambitions, because, you know, there was the provocative um, high five that she and Manchin did. But more substantively, what she chose to use as her example was voting rights. You know, she had this quip that, you know, there we there that Democrats were crying that we would never have free and fair elections again if this package, you know, wasn't moved forward. And here we went ahead and had a free and fair election. But that example in particular is particularly offensive to Democrats because um, and and left-leaning progressive independents because we know that the Voting Rights Act was gutted by the Supreme Court and that states, including Arizona, have continued to go on and make attacks on free and fair elections and voter access. And so using that example in particular, I thought everything she does is strategic, was a strategic kind of um, demonstration of I, I don't need to care what you think about me. Lorna, just a few minutes left. I want to ask you about a, a court ruling this week that basically keeps in place Arizona's system of early voting. The state Republican Party had sued to try to do away with it, except in some very limited cases for folks who actually cannot get to the polls. This, I mean, this is something that is extremely popular. What, 80 some odd percent of, of yes. Arizonans vote early, right? Yes, and have been doing so for almost 30 years at this point. I mean, we could put this in the category of another dumb lawsuit that was completely unnecessary. Um, I, Republicans need to stop attacking the early voting system in Arizona. We've I, it's so funny because a few years ago when during COVID and states were actually starting to implement for the first time mail-in voting, early voting, everyone was saying, look to Arizona. They've been doing it for so long, you know, where we were kind of the gold star and then we've transitioned to where we are now. We need to stop focusing on that. If they really want to spend time discussing about tabulation of early ballots that get dropped off late, I think that's a legitimate policy conversation for the that's legislature. Something Stephen Richer has been talking about. You know, about. and then yeah, even the Maricopa County recorder has been talking about it. If we want to figure out ways to expedite the counting and tabulation, that's a fair, fair conversation to have. But to continue to attack and try to eliminate an entire system that Republican voters depend on as well is absolutely ludicrous and ridiculous. They just need to stop the lawsuits. <laughs> Would Democrats – I mean are, are Democrats at the point where they just kind of want these lawsuits to continue because it's good for them politically or <laughs> is it just – are they thinking, OK – Everybody uses this. So many people use this. Let's just let's just leave it alone for now. Yeah, I think the Democrats would like to try to get some good things done um, and and stop having, you know, these invented problems. And actually, I was I was personally really surprised and a little saddened to see Stephen Richer um, proposing to um, make it so that early ballots had to be dropped off sooner. He has been a strong defender of the efficacy, the accuracy, the integrity of our election system here in Arizona. And so that surprised me and disappointed me because that's just three more days where voters can't turn it in their ballot. Republicans drop off their ballots on election day at higher rates than anyone else. And so attacking that in particular and and to be let me take back the word attack. He didn't attack it. He said he'd like to start a conversation about it, right. which I think is fair. But ultimately, I think that conversation needs to end in 
no. That's just another way that makes voting harder for more people. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Don Panich-Thacker of Agave Strategy, also Lorna Romero-Ferguson of Elevate Strategies. Thanks you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.